We turn once more in two passages in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, and then 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, Paul there says, after having explained how worship is to be conducted, explaining how there is to be order, not confusion, not disorder in the church of Christ with prophecies and people speaking in tongues and all the rest. Uh, He says at the very end of that chapter, but all things should be done decently and in order. And then we go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul there, uh, near the end of his life, speaking to his spiritual son Timothy, says, after explaining the qualifications for elder, that is bishop or overseer, and the qualifications for deacons, says, Verse 14, chapter 3, 1 Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Amen. Let's ask God for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we come to you once more and ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to understand your word now as we Father, uh, have looked at um, some erroneous types of church government. We, Father, seek your will and your word to know how to live. Uh, Father, it's not enough to know what to avoid and what not to do. Lord, we want to walk in the way of your commandments. So help us and guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Previously, last week, we noted that there are Uh, two types of church government that have developed over time. The first, of course, is what is called episcopacy. Episcopacy. And then, as a reaction to episcopacy, congregationalism. Congregationalism. Uh, And these, of course, are systems, uh, types of government that take something that's true in Scripture and uh, distorted or corrupted or perverted, right? We notice that episcopacy, right, based off the Greek word episkopos, which is translated um, overseer, or in English we would say bishop. Um, bishop is simply a corruption of the word episkopos, uh, biscop. Um, uh, episcopacy takes the leadership of the church and exalts it to Uh, a degree that scripture prohibits, right? So that clericalism, so that leadership is the end all and be all of the church. In fact, in the Romanist churches, uh, ministry being ordained, as we'll see our brothers Andre and Alfredo ordained later this week on Saturday, that's a sacrament. That's a sacrament in the church of Rome. And and we absolutely wholeheartedly reject that um, uh, error and this system of church government. As a response to episcopacy, what has become very uh, popular and the default position in our day is what's called congregationalism or independency, which is to say that congregations cast off all denominations, all connections between churches as inherently sinful, right? You can't be part of a denomination. Uh, A lot of times, perhaps people uh, looking for a healthy church might ask, 
are, are you guys part of a denomination, right? Are you, do you, are you connected with anyone? Um, and of course, the assumption in that question is that it's better to be connected with no one and to be completely independent. But this too, as we'll see momentarily, um, as we consider what scripture says, the Reformed and Presbyterian uh, form of church government, this too is erroneous and deficient. I should mention that there's a variant uh, of these two, and it, oftentimes it occurs with episcopacy, and that variant is called Erastianism. Erastianism is named after a 16th century man named Erastus, who believed that uh, no matter what church existed, no matter what church government or form of government existed, uh, the state had the prerogative, the state had the right to supervise and interfere and meddle in uh, the church, all right? And you see uh, at different times, this has been very popular to believe. Um, the Romanist church in the medieval age was oftentimes under the thumb of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Anglicanism as well, historically, has been a very Erastian, um, meaning uh, that is to say that the Church of England uh, exists under the monarch of England. In fact, Charles III uh, is called the defender of the faith. That's one of his vows uh, as he ascends the throne and the monarchy that he will defend the English uh, Protestant church, all right? And he is deemed the head of that church. Uh, certain Eastern Orthodox churches also are Erastian. You see this even in our day where um, the patriarchs uh, in Russia or in Ukraine or in Eastern Europe are happy to be controlled. Uh, they, they are very content for their churches to be controlled by the politicians in those areas, whether uh, on the national level or a uh, local level. All right. And that is the, the form of government known as Erastianism, which is a variation uh, on these two. All right. All right. What does scripture teach? Uh, we know what Scripture doesn't teach. We know what Scripture prohibits. And so we want to consider now what Scripture teaches. The Reformed form of government, or we would say Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism. All right. So-called because uh, it is rule by elders, or from the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros, all right? Presbyterianism is the rule by elders. And in what follows, I want to credit an Irish Presbyterian of the 19th century, his essay on Presbyterianism, Thomas Witherow, who I think captured the essence of Presbyterianism very well. There are six things that mark Reformed church government. We can talk about perhaps others, but these are six central uh, axioms of reformed church government, how to order the church of Christ. First of all, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Uh, there is no other head of the church. In other words, no mere man is the head of the church, uh, nor a conglomeration of men uh, can serve as the head of the church. The head of the church is no earthly temporal prince. The head of the church is not uh, a, a human mortal office bearer doesn't matter how many his gifts are or his labors or how much he has suffered. It is Christ who is the head of his church. And this, of course, is so clear. Uh, it's almost uh, so obvious we need not say it, but we need to say it. 
All right, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, uh, we're told in that exhortation of Paul to husbands, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Again, Colossians 1.18, and Christ is the head of the body, the church, all right? So we are subjects of Christ the King, not subjects of the pastor, not subjects of some ruler. Uh, this isn't the fiefdom of any man. This is the kingdom of Christ because Christ alone is the head of the church, which means that Christ's word alone is the law of the land, right? We are not guided by the law or by the word or words of mere men. We must be guided by the word of God. That is our law that governs us uh, um, forever and ever. And that will forever be the case, all right? Christ does not share his glory with anyone. If you don't have this first axiom in place, this foundation stone, what you end up having are men who accumulate power for themselves, who force God's people to do things that God's word doesn't require or prohibit things that God allows, right? Because their word has become the word that governs the church. But this, not, this ought not to be uh, beloved brothers and sisters. Christ is the head of the church. That's number one. Number two, office bearers are chosen by the people. Uh, in other words, office bearers, elders, deacons, pastors, ministers, uh, they are not um, appointed uh, by men, uh, by, for instance, pastors. Pastors don't get to pick their successors nor appoint leaders who have not been elected and chosen by the local church. They may nominate, right, uh, but not elect them secretly and privately. And here, of course, what we have in mind is the error of episcopacy where um, cardinals and bishops and prelates and priests and all the rest, right? Apart from being a hierarchy that is nowhere found in scripture, uh, these officers are appointed by leaders and not by the people. They're not chosen by the people. Look at a number of passages in God's word uh, to see this being the case. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 23 and 26. The highest office known to man, the office of apostle. We're told that because Judas uh, was the son of perdition, there is uh, a need to replace him. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 1, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Verse 26, and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles, all right? They cast lots. That's another way of saying that they voted, they chose um, with a human, uh, a human instrumentality, right? It wasn't uh, divinely revealed who to choose. They had to make a decision, all right? They had to exercise um, their decision-making powers. And so they choose Matthias, and he is numbered with the apostles. A look over at Acts chapter 6, the same thing as the case here, as the deacons are chosen. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, 
uh, we're told that there uh, had been a controversy among some of the Jews. Uh, some of the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows had been neglected in the distribution of daily bread. Uh, and so um, the apostles say, you pick men uh, amongst yourselves. We cannot, as apostles, we cannot leave the ministry of the word and prayer, but you pick men who can help you in this regard. Uh, ministers of mercy, deacons, right? And so what are we told? Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All right. So even deacons, the highest office, perhaps we would say the lowest office, even though that's not entirely correct because there's no hierarchy in the church. Uh, both are chosen by God's people. They are um, vetted. We would say they are uh, filtered. They're screened by the apostles, right? The apostles bring nominations, but these are uh, leaders in the church that are chosen by God's people, all right? Uh, there are instances uh, in Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5 where officers or elders are appointed uh, without uh, being chosen by God's people, but they are appointed, they are exceptional, they are appointed under the direct authorization of apostles, all right? And of course, we're not, we don't have any apostles in our day, so it's hard to follow that directive today. Third, uh, not only is Christ the head of the church, office bearers are chosen by the people, but third, the office of bishop and elder are identical, are identical. Look over at Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and 7 of Titus 1. <clears throat> Paul there says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you, may, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And notice what he says. You have to appoint elders in every town. For an overseer, for an overseer, that is a bishop, all right, an episcopos, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain and so on and so forth, all right? But here, for our purposes, notice what Paul is saying, right? You must appoint elders who are overseers, who are bishops, all right? Notice also in Acts chapter 20, the same thing is said. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and 28. Paul there says, uh, or rather Luke, writing the book of Acts says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's talking uh, to the elders. He's about to address them. And then in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Elders are to oversee God's church. They are called overseers, all right? And so why is it important to hold to this axiom? Because there is not contra-episcopacy. There is not a hierarchy of officers. There is not a hierarchy that has 
pope on top, and then cardinals, and then archbishops, and then bishops and priests, and elders, and so on and so forth. Rather, there is in Scripture an equality, a parity, we would say, between officers, pastors, shepherds, bishops, overseers, presbyters, and elders describe the same office. Not two different offices, not a hierarchy of offices, but the same offices, the same office, but with different emphases. Some uh, elders, all elders, rule in the church, but some labor specifically in the word. And that's the distinction between pastors or ministers and elders. Uh, Pastors and ministers declare God's word. Other elders uh, labor in shepherding God's people. All officers, whether ministers or elders, uh, are to oversee God's people according to God's word. Uh, notice 1 Timothy. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 to m- see this distinction in God's word. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. It says, uh, God's word says, Let the elders who rule well be uh, considered worthy of do- double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. All elders rule, but some labor, especially and specifically, particularly in the preaching and teaching of God's word. But we never want to make a hierarchy, right? That the pastors on top and the elders are beneath them. No, elders and pastors share in the same authority that has been delegated to them by God himself. All right. Fourthly, in each local congregation, here we are talking about what what is it that Reformed Presbyterian uh, church government is? What what does the Bible teach about church government? What is the biblical order in each church? Fourthly, in each local congregation, there should be a plurality of elders, a plurality of elders, right? It is not contra- congregationalism or episcopacy the case that there should be only one leader in fact that is unhealthy for there to be uh, just a pastor uh, leading the church even when we have been a church plant and we're coming to the end of that tenure for the last 10 years we have been always under the oversight of elders in new york uh, at messiah's reform fellowship all right even in a church plant the church planting pastor is not alone and may not be alone. He is part of the leadership of the church that sent him. Notice in Acts, a couple of passages, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Uh, Here we're told about Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. Verse 23, Acts 14 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, right uh, here, the elders are not chosen by the congregation. They're directly appointed by the apostle Paul and Barnabas. But notice for our purposes that each and every church has elders, right? It's not just one elder per church. It's multiplicity of elders in one church. And may the Lord be pleased to raise more elders uh, from our midst here. 
Uh, notice Acts, well, we already read Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul there directs that letter to who? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. All right. Each congregation, and here we take note that Philippi is no exception, had overseers, all right, uh, had more than one elder. In other words, a congregation must have a shared body of governance, not simply one man, not simply one man. Fifthly, ordination is an act of a plurality of elders. When men are ordained into ministry, again, it's not simply one man anointing or appointing another man, right? Appointing or anointing his successor. It is not a private act of one man to another. There is a shared acknowledgement of the internal call of God upon a man. And that's what we're going to see on Saturday, all right? We're going to have the churches of classes having um, observed us for 10 years, having vetted us recently uh, after uh, we presented to classes a couple of weeks ago, right? They are acknowledging God's call upon this church and God's call upon these two men. Uh, and more than that, not only classes, but particularly our overseeing church, Messiahs, has known Alfredo and Andre for years. And they are, as it were, acknowledging the internal calling of God upon their lives. External calling, examination, ordination, laying on of hands is done by a body of elders, not only by a single man. Uh, notice a number of passages here. We already looked at Acts chapter 6, verse 6, when deacons are ordained, all right, they prayed and they laid their hands on them, all right? Uh, the apostles ordained the deacons. Notice Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, <clears throat> verse 2 and 3. Um, Paul's home church was Antioch, uh, Antioch of uh, Syria. And in Antioch, we're told in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Uh, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice that even Paul, the great apostle, was a man under authority. He has to be sent by the church. He has to be set apart. He has to be ordained with the laying on of hands. And then he is sent off in what is commonly termed his first missionary voyage. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 as well. 1 Timothy 4, 14. Uh, it says, do not neglect the gift you have. Paul speaking to uh, Pastor Timothy, uh, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. All right. Uh, this is, of course, something that uh, is not found either oftentimes in congregationalism or in a 
the Episcopacy form of church government, right? There you find a, a kind of a private act, a secret act, one man ordaining another man, but never do you see the broad church acting together in the plurality of uh, leadership of elders ordaining men. Uh, and then finally, sixthly, in Presbyterian church government, what we find is, and this is perhaps uh, the, the, the most striking, the most uh, memorable aspect of reformed church government. There is a right of appeal to, external, to an external assembly of elders acting in a broader capacity. Presbyterian church government, reformed biblical church government, has and retains the right of appeal to an external assembly of elders acting in a broader capacity. In other words, acting not only in the capacity of elders to their local church, but acting for the well-being of the broader body of Christ. We want to be, of course, careful to make distinctions here. On the one hand, uh, Scripture teaches that each local church is a church of Christ that is called to regulate its life according to the word of God, aligned with how faithful churches have lived and believed in the past. Uh, and what this means is that because every church is a church, right, um, the basic unit of church life and of ministry is not uh, some broader assembly. We are Grace Reformed Church. We are a church here. We are not simply an appendage of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship. Uh, as, as fine as those brothers are in New York, and we praise God for you guys who are visiting from Murph today. Um, what this means for the pastor is that he is called to local church ministry. Uh, it is not the case that a pastor can be called to a broader assembly by a broader assembly. All right? He is not called, in other words, to a bureaucracy. A minister has to be a minister in the local church. Uh, again, this is perhaps not so relevant for congregationalism as it is for episcopacy, where you find uh, all sorts of officers and, and leaders of the church ordained to, to non-local church ministry. Right? What, what is their ordination vows to? It's to the bureaucracy of either the Anglican church or the Romanist uh, primacy, all right? uh, the, the papacy in Rome. A pastor is called to local church ministry. And what this also means, on the one hand, is that because every church is a church, all local churches have parity, have equality. Uh, ministers and elders have parity, right? One is not above the other. And likewise, churches have parity. Uh, there is not uh, one church that can be above other churches. There is not one church that can tell another church or another set of churches what to do. There is not one church that is closer to God than another church or set of churches. And of course, we want to remember the problem with episcopacy at this point that says that it is the church of Rome that has the anointing. It is the church of Rome that is closer to God. It is the bishop of Rome, one of the many titles given to the pope, it's the Bishop of Rome who can lead the Western churches. Uh, no, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's nowhere found in Scripture. And unfortunately, in the history of the church, by the end of the 5th century, you had five main churches or bishoprics 
um, that uh, helped lead uh, other churches in their region. You had Antioch, you had Alexandria, which were the two main centers uh, of Christian ministry. You had Constantinople all the way in uh, modern-day Turkey in the east. You had Jerusalem, and then the only church in the west was Rome, and that's one of the reasons why Rome gains prominence historically, because it's the only church, uh, it's really the main church uh, in the West, or at least it's deemed the main church. Uh, but this should never have happened, all right? Uh, there are, of course, uh, ministers who are influential. There are churches that can be influential, but every church is a church of Christ. So we want to uh, confess that uh, very clearly on the one hand. But on the other hand, on the other hand, each local church is to be a part of a broader visible fellowship, all right? Uh, part of a broader visible fellowship that confesses the same doctrine. So even though we are here a united reformed church, we are a congregation in the URC, uh, what we confess is that we are part, yes, we are a complete church, but we are part of a broader visible fellowship, the united reformed churches, the United Reformed Churches. A church, a particular church, always needs other churches to depend upon for wisdom and guidance and to retain this right to appeal. All right? And this is what you see. Look over at Acts chapter 15. Um, it's a chapter worthy of great study and of careful reading. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15 um, records for us the first council of the church. The first council of the church. A dispute arises, we read, in verse 1. <clears throat> but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And, uh, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, uh, the words that follow. And then in verse 12, and the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So in this assembly, notice of apostles and elders in verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 22, verse 23. And then again in chapter 16, verse 4, it's apostles and elders together. In this assembly, they are gathered to settle the matter that has arisen, which is a very crucial matter when you think about it, that the church even had to consider and settle this matter. Can Gentiles, 
be part of the church of Christ? Or do they need to be circumcised in order to be Christians? In order to be Christians. And this is a matter that could not be settled in Antioch. These brothers who were teaching that uh, uh, Gentiles need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, right? They came down from Jerusalem. And it's always said that you come down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill. So they came down from Jerusalem and they went to Antioch and were teaching this doctrine. What has been called the Galatian heresy. This matter cannot be settled after much disputing, after much debating, back and forth, and no small dissension. They take the matter where? To an external assembly that is a broader assembly that is composed of not just the elders of Antioch, the elders of Jerusalem, but of all the elders of the churches in that region. And what's interesting to note here about this sixth and final axiom, perhaps one of the most important axioms of Reformed and Presbyterian church polity, is that the the deliberation could have been bypassed by a God-inspired apostolic letter that was sent by Paul. Paul could have written a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and sent it to the churches, and that would have been it. It would have settled the matter. Right? The matter could have been settled with no consideration, no discussion, no back and forth, no reporting from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. But that is not the will of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is pleased to leave us, to leave a pattern for us to follow, which is this that when matters arise that cannot be properly settled within the local congregation, we have a right of appeal to a broader assembly of elders and ministers that are external to our local congregation, right? If for some reason there's a matter that arises that we can't settle, whether in terms of doctrine or in terms of practice, we here in Grace Reformed Church have a right to go to classes, Or if there is a church somewhere in classes or somewhere in the URC that we believe is practicing something that is contrary to God's word in terms of doctrine or practice, we have a right to appeal to classes to send a letter and correct that church of classes or the church of another, uh, in another part of the country, in another region, right? This is such an important point, all right? Uh, that churches of the apostolic era deliberated and submitted themselves to this decision. Even Paul, Paul the great apostle, is a man under authority. And this is the pattern we see from the apostolic church, that together they deliberated, together they decided what they would do together, uh, and together the apostolic church worked for many things they held in common to uphold the teaching of Christ, to uphold the inclusion of Gentiles in the mission of the church, and many other things like the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. So if you've been tracking now with the six axioms, the six facets of biblical church polity, you realize that episcopacy fails all six tests. Episcopacy fails all six criteria. Episcopacy denies 
the headship of Christ. Episcopacy denies that office bearers are chosen by the people. It denies that the office of bishop and elder are identical. Uh, it denies that in each local congregation there should be a plura plurality of elders. It denies that ordination is an act of the plurality of elders. And it denies the right of appeal to an external assembly of elders acting in a broader capacity. Well, where does congregationalism, uh, where is that left off in our consideration of God's word? It only has the first three. Yes, congregationalism upholds uh, the headship of Christ. It upholds that uh, office bearers are to be chosen by God's people. And it upholds that um, uh, there is no hierarchy, that bishops and elders are the same. But it fails in criteria for five and six, and especially here in this last one, where there is no right of appeal. There is no right of appeal. If you've ever been in a congregationalist church and you, you have uh, issues, you have questions about what's being taught or how uh, people are being uh, instructed to live, right, in terms of doctrine or life, you go to the elders, you go to the minister and you say, I have questions and they disagree with you. And that's the end of the matter. You have no right of appeal. You have no appeal to a broader body, a broader assembly of ministers and elders that can weigh the matter and either uphold that local congregation or correct that local congregation. And so episcopacy and congregationalism fail to uphold biblical church polity. And we, we have to wrap here. I, I can't believe we're out of time here. But um, when you don't have biblical church government, what you'll have is... One pope with episcopacy, uh, one big pope, and then you have a lot of little popes with congregationalism, with independency, all right? Ministers becoming popes or elders becoming popes. Um, and only, you see, in faithful Presbyterian Reformed churches that follow God's word do you have a biblical check on human authority, all right? Um, and we'll, we'll leave it there for now, and uh, we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask and pray that as we consider uh, the way you've ordered this world and your church and ordained, Father, um, things for us to follow faithfully, we pray, Lord, give us a mind for Presbyterianism, uh, that we would love your word, uh, Father, in the main things, but even in the smaller, perhaps seemingly minor things like this doctrine of church government. Father, we pray, help us to understand and to love your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.